Section 14 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Gradwell. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books, edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to the Novum Organum by Francis Bacon. Those who have taken upon them to lay down the law of nature as a thing already searched out and understood, whether they have spoken in simple assurance or professional affectation, have therein done philosophy and the sciences great injury. For as they have been successful in inducing belief, so they have been effective in quenching and stopping inquiry, and have done more harm by spoiling and putting an end to other men's efforts than good by their own. Those, on the other hand, who have taken a contrary course, and asserted that absolutely nothing can be known, whether it were from the hatred of the ancient sophists, or from uncertainty and fluctuation of mind, or even from a kind of fullness of learning, that they fell upon this opinion, have certainly advanced reasons for it that are not to be despised. But yet they have neither started from true principles, nor rested in the just conclusion, zeal and affectation having carried them much too far. The more ancient of the Greeks, whose writings are lost, took up with better judgment a position between these two extremes, between the presumption of pronouncing on everything, and the despair of comprehending anything, and though frequently and bitterly complaining of the difficulty of inquiry and the obscurity of things, and like impatient horses champing the bit, they did not the less follow up their object and engage with nature, thinking, it seems, that this very question, viz., whether or no anything can be known, was to be settled not by arguing, but by trying. And yet they too, trusting entirely to the force of their understanding, applied no rule, but made everything turn upon hard thinking, and perpetual working and exercise of the mind. Now my method, though hard to practice, is easy to explain, and it is this. I propose to establish progressive stages of certainty. The evidence of the sense, helped and guarded by a certain process of correction, I retain. But the mental operation which follows the act of sense, I for the most part reject, and instead of it, I open and lay out a new and certain path for the mind to proceed in, starting directly from the simple sensuous perception. The necessity of this was felt, no doubt, by those who attributed so much importance to logic, showing thereby that they were in search of helps for the understanding and had no confidence in the native and spontaneous process of the mind. But this remedy comes too late to do any good, 
when the mind is already, through the daily intercourse and conversation of life, occupied with unsound doctrines and beset on all sides by vain imaginations, and therefore that art of logic, coming, as I said, too late to the rescue, and no way able to set matters right again, has had the effect of fixing errors rather than disclosing truth. There remains but one course for the recovery of a sound and healthy condition, namely, that the entire work of the understanding be commenced afresh, and the mind itself be from the very outset not left to take its own course, but guided at every step, and the business be done as if by machinery. Certainly, if in things mechanical men had set to work with their naked hands, without help or force of instruments, just as in things intellectual they have set to work with little else than the naked force of the understanding, very small would the matters have been which, even with their best efforts applied in conjunction, they could have attempted or accomplished. Now, to pause while upon this example, and look in it as in a glass, let us suppose that some vast obelisk were, for the decoration of a triumph or some such magnificence, to be removed from its place, and that men should set to work upon it with their naked hands. Would not any sober spectator think them mad? And if they should then send for more people, thinking that in that way they might manage it, would he not think them all the madder? And if they then proceeded to make a selection, putting away the weaker hands, and using only the strong and vigorous, would he not think them madder than ever? And if lastly, not content with this, they resolved to call in aid the art of athletics, and required all their men to come with hands, arms and sinews, well anointed and medicated, according to the rules of art, would he not cry out that they were only taking pains to show a kind of method and discretion in their madness? Yet just so it is that men proceed in matters intellectual, with just the same kind of mad effort and useless combination of forces, when they hope great things, either from the number and cooperation, or from the excellency and acuteness of individual wits. Yea, and when they endeavour by logic, which may be considered as a kind of athletic art, to strengthen the sinews of the understanding, and yet with all this study and endeavour it is apparent to any true judgment that they are but applying the naked intellect all the time, whereas in every great work to be done by the hand of man it is manifestly impossible, without instruments or machinery, either for the strength of each to be exerted, or the strength of all to be united. Upon these premises two things occur to me, of which, that they may not be overlooked, I would have men reminded. First, it falls out fortunately, as I think, for the allaying of contradictions and heart-burnings, that the honour and reverence due to the ancients remains untouched and undiminished. 
while I may carry out my designs, and at the same time reap the fruit of my modesty. For if I should profess that I, going the same road as the ancients, have something better to produce, there must needs have been some comparison or rivalry between us, not to be avoided by any art of words, in respect of excellency or ability of wit. And though in this there would be nothing unlawful or new, for if there be anything misapprehended by them, or falsely laid down, why may not I, using the liberty common to all, take exception to it? Yet the contest, however just and allowable, would have been an unequal one, perhaps, in respect of the measure of my own powers. As it is, however, my object being to open a new way for the understanding, a way by them untried and unknown, the case is altered. Party zeal and emulation are at an end, and I appear, nearly as a guide, to point out the road, an office of small authority, and depending more upon a kind of look than any ability or excellency, and thus much relates to the persons only. The other point of which I would have men reminded relates to the matter itself. Be it remembered, then, that I am far from wishing to interfere with the philosophy which now flourishes, or with any other philosophy more correct and complete than this which has been or may hereafter be propounded. For I do not object to the use of this received philosophy, or others like it, for supplying matters for disputations or ornaments for discourse, for the professor's lecture and for the business of life. Nay, more, I declare openly that for these uses the philosophy which I bring forward will not be much available. It does not lie in the way. It cannot be caught up in passage. It does not flatter the understanding by conformity with preconceived notions, nor will it come down to the apprehension of the vulgar except by its utility and effects. Let there be, therefore, and may it be for the benefit of both, two streams and two dispensations of knowledge, and in like manner two tribes or kindreds of students in philosophy, tribes not hostile or alien to each other, but bound together by mutual services. Let there, in short, be one method for the cultivation, another for the invention of knowledge. And for those who prefer the former, either from hurry or from considerations of business, or for want of mental power to take in and embrace the other, which must needs be most men's case, I wish that they may succeed to their desire in what they are about, and obtain what they are pursuing. But if any man there be who, not content to rest in and use the knowledge which has already been discovered, aspires to penetrate further, to overcome not an adversary in argument, but nature in action, to seek not pretty and probable conjectures, but certain and demonstrable knowledge, 
I invite all such to join themselves, as true sons of knowledge, with me, that, passing by the outer courts of nature, which numbers have trodden, we may find a way at length into her inner chambers. And to make my meaning clearer, and to familiarize the thing by giving it a name, I have chosen to call one of these methods always anticipation of the mind, the other interpretation of nature. Moreover, I have one request to make. I have, on my own part, made it my care and study that the things which I shall propound should not only be true, but should also be presented to men's minds, however strangely soever preoccupied and obstructed, in a manner not harsh or unpleasant. It is but reasonable, however, especially in so great a restoration of learning and knowledge, that I should claim of men one favour in return, which is this. If any one would form an opinion or judgment, either out of his own observation, or out of the crowd of authorities, are out of the forms of demonstration which have now acquired a sanction like that of judicial laws concerning these speculations of mine let him not hope that he can do it in passage or by the by but let him examine the thing thoroughly let him make some little trial for himself of the way which i describe and lay out let him familiarize his thoughts with that subtlety of nature to which experience bears witness. Let him correct, by seasonable patience and due delay, the depraved and deep-rooted habits of his mind. And when all this is done, and he has begun to be his own master, let him, if he will, use his own judgment. End of section 14 Recording by Martin Gradwell